Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Take advantage of the advanced video capabilities offered by Bosch to help reduce your shrink risk. Integrate video recordings with point-of-sale data for visual verification of transactions and exception reporting. Use video analytics for immediate notification of important AP-related events, and leverage analytics metadata for fast forensic searches for evidence and to improve merchandising and operations. Learn more about extending your video system beyond simple surveillance in Zones 1-4 through of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast. This is our latest in the weekly update series. Um, I'm joined by uh, my colleagues, uh, Tony D'Onofrio and Tom Meehan, as well as our producer, Diego Rodriguez. And uh, we're going to kind of do a whirlwind tour together with you all um, uh, looking at all things retail um, and trying to uh, put out some of the latest and make sense of it. And most importantly, look for indicated actions that we can take. So um, we start, of course, uh, on my end with the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus and the COVID-19 disease pandemic that we've all been in now approaching one year um, on a more global basis. And um, talk about the, the disease. You know, we're well over a half a million deaths in the United States attributed to the disease so far. Um, and I know that we lost a, uh, a member of the LPAP family, Danny Watkins, um, to the disease or uh, all or in part. And uh, and Danny, unfortunately, is not the first and a great colleague and um, and uh, member of our community for, for so many years. Um, it, it, so it can be a very, very benign disease. It can be a very, very serious disease. Um, it so much depends on uh, the dosing, as we've talked about. The, uh, it looks like the amount of inoculum that we onboard may play a role, um, but it certainly is our immune response or non-response um, that seems to drive so much of the outcome um, and how we handle it, uh, as with so many other diseases and uh, pathologies. And um, the viral variants continue, as everyone predicted. Um, evidently, this uh, RNA-type virus does not uh, evolve as rapidly um, or as haphazardly as others, but it still does. And so we see the replication errors and others that are driving this, these mutations, if you will. And, uh, and, and many of the variants are benign or even helpful, but it looks like, of course, that several in a slightly uh, a growing number of the variants uh, are a little more transmissible to a lot more transmissible. And one or more may be more virulent. In other words, more likely to cause, I guess, serious, serious disease. Um, in us as humans. And again, remember, this is not a human virus or one that evolved necessarily in humans. So that's why, number one, it's creating so many serious issues for so many people globally. Uh, also, um, why we're having to figure it out, um, but with such unprecedented um, joint collaborative research going on around the world and has been now for 12 months, um, plus preceding research because of cars. So SARS-CoV-1 and and other somewhat similar type viruses, including coronaviruses, um, it gave us a little bit of a head start uh, and clearly our ability to rapidly sequence and look at the gene lineup of, uh, in this case, this particular virus and then now its variants. Um, that's why you see such rapid uh, launch and capability as far as vaccines uh, are going. And I think 
there's been skepticism by some, well, how come this happened so quickly? Well, because mRNA, again, vaccines and therapies have been under serious development, my understanding is uh, development for over well over a decade. This is, uh, so they were way ahead. They just kind of replaced one gene sequence for another. In other words, putting in the, the coronavirus um, in there and taking out whatever else was in there and then rapidly doing the needed research in, in phase one, phase two, and phase three, following uh, exhaustive global clinical analysis, and preclinical analysis. Um, so here we are, we've got um, several vaccines um, available. We understand that over across the world now, well over or about approximately a quarter of a billion humans have now had at least one of the doses if it's a two dose series. Um, the United States, uh, well over 55 million have got received at least one. Um, in the United States, we've got uh, over 25 million Americans now that have completed both doses. So they've completed the regimen uh, either hours or days or weeks out, uh, in some cases, even months now. So um, we're really dramatically increasing the amount of vaccinated people in the United States and the world. Um, in looking at some of the vaccines, of course, we know that in phase one now, they continue to pour in and there are now 41 uh, vaccines in phase one trial. Um, and there are, there are dozens more that are in uh, preclinical analysis, pretrial. Um, we've got at least 28 in phase two trials and 20 vaccines in phase three trials. In addition to the six now that have uh, emergency use authorization. We understand, of course, the J&J &J vaccine also now, in addition to the Pfizer and Moderna in the United States, received emergency use authorization um, and, and was shipped out on this Sunday night. We're recording this Tuesday morning. Um, and so it's our understanding that starting today, already Tuesday, people start to receive the one dose refrigeration only needed J&J uh, &J vaccine. Uh, again, the reports seem to be that it may not be as efficacious against uh, asymptomatic or low symptomatic disease, but seems to be highly effective against serious disease, hospitalization, and fatalities. Um, and again, the you know the the claims out there are that this vaccine uh, was being tested in two phase two and three trials. Um, as the much more virulent or more virulent and certainly more transmissible uh, variants were starting to circulate. This uh, vaccine was heavily tested in South Africa, I believe Brazil and other places, uh, as well as the United States. So that holds a lot of promise, the J&J &J vaccine, because it may be battle tested, if you will, um, out there. And again, it's an only a one dose regimen right now, even though they are testing two dose, um, my understanding is conducting a, a phase two or three trial in that way, but um, it's gonna provide a lot of flexibility also because if it's, it does, again, does not need to be kept frozen well, well, well below zero. Um, so now with three vaccines approved in the United States, more on the way, uh, it looks like the Novavax uh, looking at Phase three trials in the UK, South Africa looks very efficacious as well, uh, approaching 90% efficacious. Um, that uh, stands to hold, a lot, that holds a lot of promise, also does not need to be kept frozen. Um, and so, you know, we're starting to see vaccine options uh, emerging and are moving through phase one, two, and three trials that do not require uh, 
so such low temperature uh, temperatures to maintain stability. Uh, even though, again, we mentioned before, Pfizer is doing research and has applied to the FDA to uh, see if they can they can raise that temperature, uh, that their vaccine may in fact be more stable than at first thought. Um, and so all good news on that front. Uh, we look at the uh, transmission and what it looks like, more data continue to emerge uh, as far as transmission and the tactics, masking still seems to be the best indication that in keeping away from others, since again, nobody gets infected, nobody transmits or infects another uh, unless they stand closely and uh, they're, they're of course exhaling uh, through their nose and mouth, both need to be masked. Um, the uh, the aerosols and water droplets that are required to carry the viral particles. And again, the mask and, you know, science, the scientific learnings continue to improve uh, and evolve. And that's why you see some of the guidance change. And I know people have been skeptical. Why do we now need to layer a mask? Well, you know, think about it again. It's like a seatbelt. You know, if we have no seatbelt, um, we have a lot higher chance of being injured or killed, uh, especially even at low speeds. We have a lap belt, there's an improvement. We have a shoulder belt improvement. We have a five point harness, there's an, a further improvement, um, but nothing, there's zero, there's no such thing as zero risk. Um, and so, you know, kind of look at masks, all of us should as in the way of seat belts, and they create an obstacle course. So the more dense and the more layers of material on one or both wearers, and both are obviously what's needed. And they're, we're creating a pretty significant obstacle course for water droplets to make it through. Uh, the the mask or, or through the edges of the mask uh, or through our nose if somebody's nose is hanging out um, that's what's infecting other people so that, it's just simple there's new research too that that indicates that part of the reason the protective uh, mechanisms of action here of a mask are creating a human environment and, and a lot of data we've seen really almost for a year now show that high humidity uh, hinders uh, viral transmission particularly with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So um, now with masks, particularly layered masks, it becomes a little more uncomfortable for us as wearers, but it partly is because we're creating a human environment. That humidity is uh, may further suppress the transmission of the virus and the viability of the actual viral particles. So, you know, there's some method to the madness. There's some logic models here into what we're trying to do um, as those try and learn. From it, uh, there's emerging evidence again, we don't know yet, but maybe these vaccines are protect are, are further protecting by diminishing the probability that even though you may not or the vaccine the vaccinated person may not get serious disease, they may be much less likely to transmit viral particles when they're breathing or talking, singing and sneezing and so forth. So um, that's what's looking like there. Uh, we'll quickly, I'm going to touch on the fact that moving out of the, the pandemic uh, here, it, looking at Minneapolis, Minnesota, we saw what happened with the tragic and bizarre death of George Floyd by uh, the officer, uh, former officer um, who, um, up there, who, uh, Derek Chauvin, and uh, I believe they've set trials within the next two weeks up there. So at LPRC, just like we've tried to do throughout the pandemic and uh, rioting and looting and other issues that we've had, elections and dangerous weather, um, be ready with fusion net, be ready with uh, the possibility of a cluster call for planning. Um, 
and uh, using our FusionNet platform to communicate before, during, and after um, anything that may occur, a, a location and place. And Tom Ian may want to touch on this. He's much more an expert than I. But again, uploading open source intelligence um, and anything that might be helpful, uploading onto the platform as well as using the uh, voice channels to communicate with each other, set up nets or networks um, where needed. Those most likely, if uh, depending on the outcomes of any rulings and the ebb and flow of a trial and pleadings and any deals that may be set and things like that um, to help retailers prepare. Um, so uh, uh, on ending up, I just want to touch on again, the amazing uh, success and collaboration that LPRC had with our board of advisors at our annual Ignite, <clears throat> which is our winter planning meeting. This year, of course, virtual. Um, our last meeting last year for LPRC was in person. Our last physical meeting was Ignite. But a tremendous show out, uh, over 30 of top executives from the APLP world um, collaborating with each other, going through key issues. <clears throat> and then the next day with uh, LPRC strategy at, in this case, at Ignite, uh, again, over 40 executives going through high-level critical issues um, like erosion of consequence, acute versus uh, persistent or chronic issues. Again, chronic issues being like shrinkage or shoplifting, uh, employee theft, um, some of those issues that we all deal with, safety, um, the uh, operational loss and so on that we're all trying to work to get better and better at. But the idea that these acute issues, uh, dangerous weather, riots, and looting, um, the pandemic, and so on that continue to come up, even active killer situations, that those acute uh, or spike uh, type of events are almost becoming chronic. And so what are ways to better plan for and prepare and equip? Uh, what are collaborative efforts that might take place leveraging each other's supply chains and so on, like we're seeing with the pandemic where we've got retailers that are transporting the vaccines but not actually administering and vice versa um, so that people are working coll collaboratively there. Um, so two tremendous events, uh, strategy at and ignite uh, with key leaders. So now with kickoff in those two events, we've got three powerful events under our belt already, and we're just just entered March of 2021. So an exciting start to the year. Um, we've also at LPRC have added um, our third research scientist in addition to myself. Now we've got Kenna Carlson, our research team leader. We've got Corey Lowe, a research scientist. We now have Danny Acton, a research scientist. So we continue to add um, depth and breadth uh, of skilled, highly, highly trained criminologists to the LPRC team. It allows us to expand our bandwidth um, and add research scientists, facilitators to each and every one of our working groups. We've also moved Diego Rodriguez, who is our producer here. He, he has been promoted and moved to the point where he is coordinating uh, our outreach, our marketing, what we we call tell uh, tell them, and then we've got uh, get them and keep them, and that is allowing supporting our membership. So look forward to a lot of great things out of Diego and helping us further shape and spread the message about the uh, LPRC research and results community. Uh, Operation Next Level continues to take off. We're closing in on 30, 30 new members that have committed to joining LPRC. Uh, the Lighthouse Consulting Team, LHC. Um, we've got five individuals there led by Jeff Powers, but we've got Russ Tate and Chad McIntosh and Stephen 
O'Keefe, north of the border in Canada. We've got Brian Hayes. Uh, those five are working away and coordinating with Diego, with Jesse, and all of our team to reach out and uh, connect with, uh, in addition to our retailers on the Board of Advisors, uh, each and every retailer in the United States and abroad that has any interest in getting themselves and their team involved in LPRC, LPRC's uh, ongoing year-round working groups, cluster calls, our six year-round events, uh, access to our knowledge center that has over 350 research reports that are available for download through the app or the website. Uh, using our lab spaces, we've got five physical labs as meeting points when, when we can uh, as a pandemic wanes and on and on. So really exciting time here at LPRC. And we, we really want to invite each and every one of you to, to get more involved in LPRC. If you are a member, if you're not, to highly consider, please reach out to operations at lpresearch.org or visit us at lpresearch.org. Okay, with no further ado, let me let me turn it over. I'm going to go over to Tony D'Onofrio. And, and Tony, if you could uh, read us up on what all is going on from a global perspective in retail. Thank you very much, Reed. Good update both on LPRC and congratulations on the two events. Those were actually exceptional. I got a chance to join some of those. So I really appreciate the leadership from LPRC. Let me start this week actually with some interesting data from Supermarket News on the popularity of the Amazon Gold Stores. Uh, nearly 60% of U.S. adults would like to see an Amazon Go in their area. Only 28% have gone to an Amazon Go store and 20% have never heard of it. But just a reminder for everybody what Amazon Go stores are, the walk-in technologies. This is where you identify yourself going in, that you're an Amazon Prime customer. You just pick up what you want in the store and you walk out and your Amazon account is automatically charged. Um, there's about two dozen of these now open in the United States. And in 2018, Amazon had announced that they were going to open 3,000 uh, 3, of these. So 54% of visitors in Amazon Go uh, store described the experience as excellent. Another 35% rated it as good. Uh, interesting that men prefer the concept more than women. So 54% of men versus 46 percent of women, 59 percent see Amazon Go stores as a threat to traditional grocery retailers such as Walmart and Kroger stores. So walkout technology will be with us uh, going forward in the future. Also, NRF uh, this past weekend just published their, their forecast for uh, retail in 2021. And again, they're projecting a very robust year with uh, retail sales expected to increase in 2021, 6.5% to 8.2%, reaching $4.33 trillion. Uh, their early results also show that retail sales in 2020 grew uh, again uh, a substantial robust 6.7% to just over $4 trillion. And they said that the holiday season uh, accounted for nearly 20% overall retail sales for the year. So good year in 2020 in retail, even with the pandemic in terms of sales, then a solid year looks like it's projected for 2021 from NRF. Uh, from Statista, some new data on uh, what's happening to 5G. So 
Uh, worldwide subscription to 5G will reach 600 million by the end of this year. What's interesting is Asia is leading, especially China. 500 million of these subscription this year will be in Asia. By 2026, there'll be over 3.3 trillion, billion, 3.3 uh, billion subscriptions in the world with again, over 2 billion in Asia. North America by 2026 will have about 500 million of these 3.3 uh, uh, billion in Europe, about a billion. So we have a lot of work to do in the US to catch up on the rest of the world in leveraging 5G and 5G is extremely important because it widens the, when, uh, the bandwidth to do, for example, a lot more video analytics and video analysis, which I think will be a key driver in, in terms of computer vision in the future. Let me run uh, briefly around the world uh, in terms of what happened with retail last year and uh, so far in some, uh, in some of the months this year. And I'm with this this week. I'm going to focus on IHL and uh, their results that they shared about Europe. So for Germany, retail sales were were up 3.9 percent last year, but they had a tough December, which were only up one and a half percent because of lockdowns. The country that's struggling the most in Europe is uh, the UK, which in January uh, retail sales were down eight percent again because of lockdown. France was a little looser, and their December sales were up 9%. Italy, again, very tough lockdowns, down 7.1% retail sales in 2020, and down 3.8% in December. So tough times in Europe in terms of uh, retail overall. Also, IHL this week did a study on the future of grocery. They published a new study on the future of of grocery or more grocery is going. And in that study, they shared the changes in retail sales in USA by segment and by customer journey for 2020. So this is what happened in food, drug, convenience, and mass merchandiser. Walk-in store sales were up 18%. Buy online pickup and store was up 27%. And traditional e-commerce was just over up 9%. For general merchandise, walk-in commerce was down 3.2%. Buy online pickup and store was up 36%, and traditional e-commerce was up 11%. And for restaurants, hospitality, walk-in was down 7.5%. Buy online pickup and store was up uh, 27%, and traditional e-commerce up 9%. So we were doing a lot more buying online pick up in stores and the only really robust channel in terms of walk-in was really grocery, drug, convenience, and mass merchandiser. The study also pointed to the continuous issues of out of stocks in grocery during the pandemic. So the equivalent loss in terms of things that were out of stock uh, during the pandemic was minus 5.9%, so substantial number of sales were lost because they just didn't have the product. So think about all the uh, shortages of uh, bathroom tissues and sanitizers and so on. That's really lost money. Uh, and then excluding the four-week surge, grocery consumers reported experiences uh, in out-of-stocks in one out of 4.2 trips that they were looking for in 2020. So a lot of items, key items out of stocks. 
the study also provided some really great insights in terms of technologies that will be important uh, in 2021. So in the next two years, uh, growth and installs in self-checkout will grow 178%. Consumer mobile self-checkout will grow 300%. And contactless payments will grow 190%. The three uh, technologies that they see being hot in terms of the next uh, uh, emerging technologies that they see being hot in the next two years are SD-WENs, and that's really making the, the pipe uh, that goes in and out of the store wider and, and much stronger. So those are going to get a lot more investment. Microservices architecture to be able to service uh, consumer differently. And then edge computing to be able to process data at the edge and, and drive a lot more intelligence. RFID will see 200% growth in the next two years. In computer vision, an amazing 400% growth in the next two years. So a lot more technologies coming to a store near you. And that's important because here at the LPRC, really, it's where we provide a lot of data and science-based intelligence in terms of what that means for both the green and the red shopper and a lot of valuable information in terms of how loss prevention should react. So. A lot of good data again this week. Uh, retail's changing, a lot more innovation going into stores. And I'm looking forward to see how LPRC can help make sense of all that. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Tom. Well, thank you, Tony. And thank you, Reed. A lot of great stuff. And um, I have a, a, a quite a few things, but they're going to wrap kind of together. I'll start kind of just by seconding what Reed had talked about in the Fusion Net and some of the events that are occurring around. Uh, the potential, you know, verdict that's coming around the George uh, Floyd incident, and actually the, the Taylor. So there's a whole bunch of things that are occurring, uh, specifically in Minnesota. And this is somewhat um, just information that's out there. Is there's an appeal appellate court looking at uh, reintroducing a third degree murder charge? Um, while I'm not an attorney, uh, it's that that charge was probably the charge that was the most likely to um, get a conviction based on the statutes and what, what's consistent of third degree murder. So that has become kind of headline news. And I think for anybody that's following this case, uh, pretty much all of the major news industry uh, outlets throughout uh, the US and even globally are, are commenting on that. So a lot more to come to that. My, my suggestion would be to continue to look at the LPRC channels that we have available and keep your eyes open on the Fusion Net as we get information becoming uh, available, we'll activate the Fusion Net and make that information as available as possible. I would caution everyone today that is hearing information to really vet the source because I got um, some anecdotal information through some uh, open source channels that I, I don't believe was accurate. It looked very accurate, but you know, making comments of statements being made about the potential outcomes um, that just based on everything that I know seem premature. But if, if I had just reacted to it, I probably would have taken an action. So uh, why the fusion that is so important is it allows you uh, as a loss prevention research council member to collaborate with other folks and really bounce things off and be able to say, okay, great. Where did you hear that from? And, and there's somewhat of a validation methodology that's really important when you're thinking about open source intelligence gathering, especially when you're making business decisions that 
you know, affect the company's profitability and, you know, uh, potentially on the reverse side, the safety and liability by not reacting correctly. So a lot more to come. I think in the coming days and weeks, we'll continue to monitor it and, and we'll, we'll appropriately um, through the right channels, keep people updated. And as uh, I think Reed mentioned, if, if it requires a cluster or that, you know, 530 Eastern call to get people on it to gather information, we can do that. And what's great about the Fusion Net is um, literally it's a flip of a switch to activate it and, and to run into full piece. So um, switching gears a little bit to, I'll talk a little bit about COVID-19 and some of the things that are occurring around COVID-19 in the, in the cyber risk world. Um, first and foremost, the cyber, uh, the, the COVID-19 relief bill, um, which I was actually pretty pleased to see there was, you know, a, an overwhelming amount of people in the government. Um, this did get um, global, certainly nationwide and global news attention from all of the major outlets of that the relief bill is lacking anti-fraud policies around unemployment. So one of the things that was in this is there was a push to say, there is a really large percentage of fraud and uh, around unemployment sites and uh, hackers taking advantage. It's something that we reported, um, you know, the, in our, on our podcast here months before um, national news reported it. And it's you know not not waving the flag that we were ahead of the game, but really just that um, this was something that we saw. Uh, it's it's a pretty interesting uh, thought process that with the relief bill, the the talking about anti-fraud policies around unemployment. Uh, the numbers are startling and with the amount of unemployment fraud and scams that went through in the last year related to COVID. And it, it's it's disheartening because we, we in the industry know people that unfortunately were furloughed that took months, uh, if not, uh, and then sometimes never were able to get their benefits because of the confusion around the websites. So the, you know, the bad guys, the hackers really took advantage of this by you know, creating sites to run through. This is still to date a really big problem with the way people are stealing information. Uh, but at least I think when you when you see things like headlines that it's going through the bill, there's there's definitely the right folks are looking at it. I'm not sure that that's the solution, but it really runs you know, something to say that people are at least paying attention to it. Next, uh, COVID-19 vaccination scams. We, we've been talking about this also since the beginning. They continue to go. This did get... Um, it probably be uh, the most news attention in the last uh, two weeks that I've ever seen it get from the Wall Street Journal, the BC, the BBC, the global news around the, the, the leveraging these scams and everything from, you know, doses for $30 each to pre-registration to steal information to actually selling a counterfeit vaccine. So definitely in the global attention, I think with the Johnson & Johnson of, you know, making sure you're running through. But for our listener base, it's just, you know, that, that consistent and constant being vigilant and paying attention to, if it doesn't make sense, it probably isn't accurate. And to date, you know, there isn't this magic way to get a vaccine. No, if you, if, you know, if you pay $30, you're not going to get moved to the head of the line. And when I say that, you know, there's this, this kind of emphasis of, well, $30, you know, who would go out and do that? But it is, you know, the law of averages. So, if they if if a thousand people a day pay thirty dollars, these bad guys make out really well. And the thirty dollar number, you know, to, is a is a, a logical number because it implies, hey, if you do that, it's small enough to get the masses to go. I'll take the risk, um, and and that's one of the things that run through. Also on the COVID nineteen front, and there's this was again 
global news. Uh, it, it really started back in, in February, in the beginning of February, and continued to kind of push through in the last two weeks. Um, I think last week there was a huge kind of information around uh, nation state sponsored attacks against pharmaceutical companies that are making vaccines. So pretty much every global news uh, um, out there reported the potential for North Korea uh, trying to hack Pfizer to steal COVID-19 tech. The interesting part here is while this was very, very widely reported, and I would CNN, um, literally the every news agency that you can think of, and as including the independent news agencies reported this um, in you know mid-February, but then a few weeks later, which is uh, a few days later, sorry, which is unusual, South Korea, uh, which is uh, said, hey, make sure that, that, that you're accurate. We don't, we don't actually see the, the same thing that everybody else is seeing. Um, well, I, I can't say one way or another if, the, if North Korea attacked Pfizer. What I can say is this is pretty typical for nation state uh, actors to go after and steal the information. So there's probably some truth to a lot of reporting, it, it, you know, of, of what is occurring. Uh, there's actually also some Chinese uh, nation state backers uh, attacked IT systems in India around COVID vaccines. Um, so there, this is just kind of, again, what we've been talking about all along as these vaccines become red, more readily available, there is a, you know, a huge spike in nation state sponsored attacks, very, very sophisticated, very well-funded attacks to try to steal trade secrets, to replicate, um, these things. This is not necessarily new, and this is definitely something we talked about, but when we think about, um, the LPRC and everything we talk about, it is a, a perfect example of someone trying to take advantage of the time. So, you know, hackers, uh, just like organized retail crime, switching their modus of operation around um, what's occurring. Uh, additionally, in, in the U.S. front, smaller scale, but I think it was, uh, you know, kind of interesting to notice hackers uh, were able to hack into one of the Pennsylvania state systems to get information on appointments for COVID-19. Why is that important? Because yes, um, it was limited personal information, but now the question is, what do you do with that? Do you reroute that information? Do you now take that information and send information to someone saying, hey, we got your appointment here. We need to get your insurance information, your personal information ahead of time. We need you to prepay. So there, it's just, it isn't all about nation state attackers. It isn't all about the big, huge thing, uh, you know, uh, events. It's all of the events combined that really run, run the gamut and, and put things, uh, you know, into place. And then I'll, I'll kind of you know, wrap up with, and this is not all related, but I thought it was important to kind of state these together is um, there is, you know, a, a host of crime that is occurring. Uh, and I'll start with the, the something that, again, we've spoken about many times is, you know, this increase in chargebacks and, and, and cybercrime related to COVID-19. There is an increase. The numbers are, are staggering in some cases, but I think, you know, taking them with uh, grain of salt because when sales are down, fraud, you know, uh, it hurts a lot harder. So, you know, how do retailers and merchants today deal with the transition to an e-com business and put in fraud and risk mitigation that doesn't slow the sale down, that doesn't stop the customer? Um, so I think we'll, I'll continue to report on this. I found a lot of great information, but I, I think it still needs to be vetted. And most of the information that I'm finding is really about not so much the numbers and the increase, but uh, what are some of the method, mitigation efforts? So taking you know, a different approach of validation or a second 
line of approach of, okay, so maybe one, you know, our common service declined this, do we send it to a secondary or a tertiary um, uh, type of screen methodology, even though it's going to cost us more. So that, that's one of the things that is coming up, but there's no doubt that as the business changes, there is an increase in chargebacks and also an increase in, you know, the amount of challenges you have uh, related to e-com goods that are running. Next, you know, next uh, piece here is related to the crime front is, uh, while I think we talk about this the most in, in ORC is what's the impact in COVID on the increase of crime. And I think Reed um, participated in, in a couple are reporting articles and, and gave his, uh, you know, his piece on it. I, I, I recently uh, were seeing an increase in some, some property crime and some violent crime, but it is somewhat anecdotal in the sense that while there's an increase in some places, there's a decrease in other cases, but there was an, an interesting kind of tidbit of reports that didn't spe uh, specify what type of crimes, but really did an overarching of, you know, the, the negative impacts of COVID related to crime and these chargebacks were in, in play, hate crimes related to the Asian population and, and the, the extreme increase got global attention in the last week. Um, again, these numbers are, are somewhat staggering. You see huge percentage increases, but you have to really take into consideration in some, in some instances with these reporting, you went from having one instance of hate crime to 10. So if you don't, or, you know, if you don't look at the numbers at the number space and just look at the percentage bases, you see these huge increases in percent, but then you start to realize um, there's definitely a trend right now of, of hate crime around Asian. And this is, uh, this is global. Uh, the BBC, the UK had reported it. Um, and it, it really is something that, again, is highlighted in some reporting around crime and increases of crime that are really uh, related to COVID and running through. And then the last thing is kind of the impact. And I know Reed, uh, Reed talks about this often is the impact that mask wearing is having on traditional retail crimes like robbery, like ORC, and what retailers are doing to mitigate that piece of it. There was um, a couple uh, behind the scenes. So through open source intelligence gathering, where it was, you know, very, uh, you know, very, very clear information on Telegram of if you go to this retailer and you wear the mask this way, um, the likelihood of you getting identified is X, as well as, you know, in this jurisdiction, the police don't respond. So all you need to do is wear a mask and a hat. And, you know, they're going to say that it's too much work. So there continues to be this, as we do here, as the folks listening to this podcast, Hopefully, are all practitioners do the bad guys are doing the research. They're on Reddit, they're on um, Telegram, and they're they're sharing the information that basically we share on the on the reverse. This is a retailer that's doing X. Wear your mask. Um, and I think one of the things that I thought was really interesting is in a couple states and jurisdictions that uh, mask wearing is not mandated and is not as heavily used. The kind of the emphasis of if you go here with a mask, you're going to draw attention to each other. So really, really well thought out kind of uh, information that's being shared. So I know that was a lot of things and kind of I tried to approach them with brevity, but we'll have some updates on next week's call related to the things that I covered if they if the updates are relevant. So back over to you, Reed. All right. Thank you so much, Tom. So much good information. Same, Tony. Um, I really appreciate it. And, you know, I think the take home is and always has been with LPRC and with Crime Science and Podcast, and particularly what we're going through now, 
you know, the lessons learned from the medical, scientific, tech community is, you know, global collective effort to better understand dynamics and to better understand, therefore, uh, more precise aiming points for solutions and better ways to orchestrate those solutions, what, what we in criminology as well as in medicine call dosing options, trying to die for better effect with fewer negative side effects um, and so forth. So, you know, let's all keep working together. Let's better understand if everybody or anybody had this thing figured out, we wouldn't have $50 billion in annual shrink and uh, the obviously the intimidation, violence, the, the growing fraud, and even now the growing theft wouldn't be here now. So to me, it's a, a big call out for us all to just better understand dynamics, better understand the dynamics of the problem, the dynamics of the solution itself too. What are those mechanisms of action uh, as well as the cascade of things, events that are causing the problem. So with no further ado, I want to thank each and every one of you. I want to thank Tony and Tom and Diego and for all of you, of course, for dialing in. Please put the word out. Let's work together um, and let us know what you think here at lpresearch.org. Um, everybody be safe. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.